Now, here we are, last night of the retreat. Again, the, the, the perception of time is in my mind. When I think back, Friday seems like a long time ago. But when I think this is the last night, it seems like the retreat has gone by just, just a flash and it's gone. And when I sit just right here and settle into the belly, it's just here. And there is no time. The time just being the, the memories and the projections of the mind, no more. Last night of the retreat, there's just so many, <coughs> so many thoughts, so many ideas about what I could, what I could talk about, and what's so important to talk about. And there's so much, and, and this is partly, partly being fueled by the retreat being relatively short, and um, and just just sitting here and just seeing if I can just settle on something. Um, I think what I'd, what I'd like to do is, is elaborate a little bit more on the talk I gave a couple of nights ago <coughs> and just speak a little bit more about um, the three characteristics, these, um, these three gateways to liberation that, that the Buddha spoke about. And so the... So the um, what I said the other night, the other night about the these gateways, about the the three characteristics, came out of talking about the aspect of investigation, the investigation of states, the inquiry into what is the nature of things, and and again inquiry not being thinking about or figuring out or using the mind to come to know it, but inquiry being just just to be present and allow whatever the object is whether it's the belly or whether it's um, a thought or a sound or a taste or a smell or a, a tangible touch sensation being present with that and being present in a steady sustained and open way that allows it to be truly known. And I mentioned um, on the day, <laughs> it seems like a long time ago too, when I did the, uh, when I talked about metta, uh, I mentioned how in a certain way the practice, the whole practice is metta. And, and it's, it's the metta that is this, this being present with and opening to and allowing being gentle with, taking care of. This, this is metta. So the practice is whenever we meet something, whatever it is, whether it's a, a body sensation, a thought, a, um, a mind state, a feeling, whatever it is, we meet it with metta. And it's in that meeting with metta that we're able to be steady and allow it to really show itself. It's like that in our real lives with another person, isn't it? The more we can meet that person in metta, the more we get to know that person. The easier it is to get to know each other. Much easier than if we're... Uh. So, so metta is, 
again, is a, is a very important part of the practice. It's a critical part of the practice. And that, that meeting with that opening to allows us to know. So that's, that's the inquiry, the investigation into what is this that I'm connecting with? What is its actual nature? And as I mentioned, the, the Buddha said that when he explored in this way, his conclusion was that there are, there are three things that he could say, three characteristics that he could say are common to everything and anything. It makes no difference at all what the thing is. These three characteristics apply. And so again, the first, the first is impermanence. In, in, in Pali, anicca. And impermanence is, is, is perhaps in a way the, the easiest one of the three to really understand because you know, it doesn't take a lot of observation or a lot of intelligence to see that things change. We know, we, we know that things change. You know, we... we um, we hold up a picture of ourselves from a bunch of years ago beside the mirror and look in the mirror and it's obvious. We may not feel like we've changed, but it, it's obvious that change has happened. <laughs> At least for those of us who are older. <laughs> uh, we, look, we look around and we, we, we see in the, in the world that, that things are changing. You know, we, we see whole countries changing their borders, changing governments, changing laws, changing, just changing everything. We look at the environment. We see how the environment is changing and, and, the, and the changes in conditions over the past number of years that have become conditions for that change in the environment. We see change in our minds, and I'm sure you've—I'm sure you've seen that in the past few days. And I mentioned how the Buddha said he can't find a simile for how fast the mind changes, and I'm sure you've seen over the past few days how quickly the mind can change. You know, mind is all, and then all of a sudden, for who knows what reason, you're just sitting here, and all of a sudden, it's quiet. And then it's quiet and quiet, and then you think, oh, I got it. And then all of a sudden again, it's... <laughs> changes. The, the, the things, you know, even, even things like, like this, I mean, it looks so solid. And I've been coming here for quite a number of years, and it's always this bowl here. <laughs> And, and it always looks like the same bowl, but when I look at it closely, like tonight I see there's a, a green spot in here that I've never noticed before. It's changed. And uh, a few years ago, actually during the retreat, there was um, a, a newspaper article that um, a group of scientists had, had built a microscope or some kind of a scope that allowed them to take an object like this and put it under the scope and they could actually see structural change happening 
in that object, even though superficially it looked the same. At a at a some at some level, they could see structural change actually happening in a continuous way, from moment to moment to moment. My favorite example is Mount Everest, <laughs> and I, I remember clearly when I was in in um, in grade nine in high school reading about Hillary and Tenzin climbing Mount Everest. And I remember that the height of Mount Everest was 29,002 feet. That stuck in me. Recently, I've read that the height of Mount Everest is now 29,028 feet. As the land mass is moving, the Indian subcontinent is moving north. Now that's change. The whole continent the whole continent is moving north, is shifting, is moving, it's changing. And it's crashing into the Asian continent and the mountains are getting higher. So Mount Everest is that much higher. It's changing. And it means that those poor mountain climbers every year, they have to climb a little bit higher <laughs> to get to the top. <laughs> It's change for them as well. These things, everything that just looks so solid and so permanent, it's all changing. And at some level, we know that. We know that everything is changing. And yet, how much of our lives are lived on an assumption of permanence? On an assumption that things won't change. Even though we know that things change, when they actually change, somehow we're surprised. We're shocked. Can't believe it. To, to, to really deeply know and understand the truth of this characteristic of change is transforming to the way we live is transforming, the way it transforms is that we know that we can't keep or hold on to anything. We can certainly have the hope that something, you know, I, I, I'll certainly hope that all of us will still be here in the morning, but I don't know. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? We make assumptions but ultimately, we don't really know. And, and with that knowing, there's, there can be, hopefully there is, that there can be just a, a loosening of, of the expectation, a loosening of the holding. And we begin to live with the knowing of change, the knowledge of change, the understanding of change. Anicca, Anicca, Anicca. The second characteristic is dukkha. Dukkha. Now, in this in this context, dukkha can be seen in in different ways. 
So one way, one way it's seen, it can be seen is because of the impermanence of things, because things change, we can't rely on them. We can't rely on them. And because we can't rely on them, there's a quality of unsatisfactoriness in things. And, um, and unsatisfactoriness is one of the translations of the word dukkha. So dukkha means unsatisfactoriness. Things have the characteristic of dukkha, so they have a characteristic of unsatisfactoriness. And this unsatisfactoriness shows in that we get something, we really, really want something. You know, we see something or we hear about something. Someone tells us about something wonderful or, or a wonderful new mobile phone comes out or a wonderful new car or a wonderful new something, some gadget, a new app for our phone. Something new comes and we just got to have it. And we get it. And it's, wow, this is fantastic. It's great. It just does so much. It makes things so much easier. And then something even better comes. (laughs) Supposedly better. Or we think of something that we wish this thing would do, and it doesn't. (laughs) I see some smiles. I know others have had the same experience. (laughs) Uh, and then we reach out for something else. I need a change. I need something new. It happens in the meditation too. You know, after two or three days of belly, belly, breathing, breathing, I want something different. I want something new. Or the qigong, we're moving our arms around. Oh, too much of this. We want more stillness, more stillness. More stillness, still, still, still. Too much stillness. I want movement. I want movement. We look for change. We look for change when we're dissatisfied with something. We can't depend on things because it's almost like <laughs> the uh, it's it's almost like the mind thrives on change, even though there's a part of the mind that doesn't like change. seems like we like change when we have some sense of being in control of it. Some sense of being in control of it. And if we sense that we're not in control, then we don't like it. And this is the dukkha. This is the dukkha. Getting what we don't like and not getting what we like. So the dukkha is this unsatisfactoriness of things. There's a dukkha dukkha just in the fact of impermanence, just the fact that things arise and pass, arise and pass. There's an unsatisfactoriness just in that. You know, things arise if we like them. We want them to stay around. We don't want them to go. Another, I mentioned how the Buddha gave this long list of, of things that are dukkha. And, and um, 
one of them after getting what we don't want and not getting what we want. The next one is separation from things that we hold dear. Separation from things that we hold dear. Things that we love, things that we cherish, things that we really like to have close to us. And separation, the loss, the loss of things, the loss of people, the loss of those who are dear to us. In that separation, we experience dukkha. And we experience, we experience dukkha because even... It, it, it's, 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 I find it interesting. Even, even in a situation where perhaps there's, there's a long illness and the person who, who, who we hold dear to is, is clearly in a dying process and could die at any moment. And we know that. And yet, when it actually happens, we feel the separation. We feel the loss. Separation from what we cherish is dukkha. And, and the, the stronger the cherishing, the stronger the holding. And, and by cherishing here, I mean holding. The stronger the holding, the stronger the attachment, the stronger the dukkha. And I think I want to make a distinction here between holding. The question often, often the question comes up on retreat. How can, how can we love without attachment? And the question that I ask is, how can we love with attachment? I think there's a very, a very clear difference, at least to me, between love and attachment. To me, love is openness and a free heart. And attachment is a a holding. Attachment smothers love. Attachment tries to control. Love allows freedom. And so, so in the, in the loss, in the separation, and in the loss of something in the loss of something. The challenge, I think, is, is to be able to, to acknowledge the loss and to feel the loss. But at the same time, somehow a sense of knowing this is how it is. So that there's the, there's the, the feeling of the loss, there's even there's the grieving, there's all that goes with it, and yet there's something within the being through the knowing of arising and passing, of impermanence, of, of dukkha, through the knowing of that, there's something within the being that's able to contain it in a way that it's free of dukkha. And I think this is where the love piece comes in. When the love is there, where's the dukkha? Tibetans have a, 
a way of classifying. They have a way of, Buddhists in general have ways of classifying everything. <laughs> the Tibetans classified dukkha into three types. First is the dukkha of dukkha. <laughs> and so that's the dukkha, the, the obvious dukkha. You know, if you, um, you're hammering a nail and you bang your thumb and it's, ah, oh, ah, ah, shouldn't have done that, stupid. That's the dukkha of dukkha. <laughs> uh, if you get up in the, in the night and you bang your leg on the corner of the bed, <laughs> that's the dukkha of dukkha. And second is the dukkha of change, the dukkha of change, which, I, which I, I've mentioned, the, the dukkha that we feel with change. When something changes and we're holding it, we don't want it to change. That's that. Getting what we don't want and not getting what we want. This is the dukkha of change. And the third one, third one is, is more difficult. The third one is, um, I would put it as the dukkha, the dukkha of existence. The dukkha of self-existence. And this, is, this relates to the third characteristic which the Buddha presented. So the Buddha said all things, anything, everything, and, and this, this right here, this Norman, this body-mind sitting here, this is a thing. So, so these apply to this thing as well as every other thing. So the, the anicca, the impermanence, the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, and the third one, which I mentioned the other night, the anatta, the not-selfness. So this third classification is, is the dukkha of not-selfness. Or the dukkha, actually, it's the dukkha of selfness. It's the dukkha of not knowing the not-selfness. And so when we, when we look around, when I look around the room, the perception is that I'm sitting here and there's one person here and one person here and one person there and, and as I go back people, the bodies get further and further and further away and when the birds sing the perception is that I'm here and the, the, the bird is out there and the sound is out there and there's this, this perception of separation this perception of separation. And, and another classification, the, the Buddha classified this being into five categories. And one category is body, and the other four are different aspects of mind. And one of these aspects of mind is what the Buddha called perception. And perception Perception is the aspect of mind that perceives a separation of objects. So so it's perception that recognizes an object as being separate from other objects. So when we look around, this is our normal way of being. We're, We're living with perception. I perceive each of you. I perceive this microphone. I perceive the bowl, et cetera, the clock. And when we look closely, we see that we can perhaps start to question that perception. 
So, did you have to do anything to see that? Did you all see that? Did anyone not see that? Okay, everyone saw it. Did anyone have to do anything to see it? No? If anyone had to do something to see it, put your hand up. No, okay. And yet you saw it. You saw it. But you didn't do anything. When the bird sings, do you do anything to make yourself hear it? No? (laughs) No. And yet, we say, I heard it. When you put that cake at tea time into your mouth, (laughs) did you do anything to make yourself taste it? Other than popping it in your mouth. (laughs) No. And yet we say, I tasted it. And this is perception at work. Perception, so the, 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 the seeing, the seeing happens because you have eyes and there's an object and the light waves from the object contact with the eye. And so the only reason that seeing happens is because of contact, because of connection, because of non-separateness. Okay, as long as those light, wa- light waves are separate from your eyes, you don't see it. When that contact is made, you see it. And so the, so the fact of seeing and the knowing of this is because of that contact. And then perception takes that contact and separates it back out and says, arm waving around, I, E-Y-E, and then I. So, I, I. (laughs) (laughs) And so, what what was seen because of just a coming together and a non-separateness is now me here seeing it there. And this is the perception and this is how we believe it is. And we live our lives believing this is how it is. We're all separate. Everything is separate because that's how I perceive it. And because I perceive it as being separate, if it's something out there that I like, then I want to get it. And so I reach out for this, and for this, and for this, and for this. If something out there is perceived as something out there that I don't like, then it's stay away, stay away. I don't want you. And so that perception of separateness becomes a condition for liking and not liking, for wanting and not wanting. And the liking and not not liking and wanting and not wanting at some level 
are mechanisms to reinforce me. To reinforce this perception of separateness. So the perception reinforces the, the, the sense of separateness and we believe that to be how it is. On one level. And yet on another level, on another level, I think we all want connection. And I think it's because at some level we know, we know that connection is how it actually is. But the, the perception is so strong, so powerful. It's so obvious <laughs> that we believe it. And when we start to really pay attention to the, the nature and the mechanism of hearing, of seeing, of tasting, of smelling, of touching, of thinking, and seeing that thinking happens because of conditions. And you, were, you, you sit here and, and <laughs> more likely you're trying to not think than trying to think, and yet thinking keeps happening. And the more you try not to, it almost seems like the more it happens. Thinking happens, smelling happens, tasting happens, dependent on the conditions of coming together, depending on the condition of non-separateness. And when we, when we, when we really understand this and really get this, we really know this non-separateness then, then there's the place for real intimacy. And all of life becomes intimacy because all of life is connection. It's all connection. And the intimacy and the connection <coughs> is the love. The intimacy, knowing, knowing this non-separateness, knowing anatta in this way, brings out the metta. It brings out compassion. It brings out a knowing that we're all in this together. It brings out a knowing that it's not just that we're all connected together, we're all intimate, but it means we're also intimate with the environment. And the more we know this intimacy, the, the more it brings out the, the metta, the kindness, the friendliness and the compassion, the more care we take with everything. And the caring, this comes not from an idea, oh, I should take care. But it comes as just, 
It's not me doing it. Don't have to do anything. It just arises out of the conditions. It's very free and very freeing. So this anatta, this anatta is a gateway to liberation because there's an ending of the me, 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 me. My, 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 my. Mine, 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 mine. The Buddha, the Buddha gave a really good practice for exploring this. Three questions that can be brought into the practice. So we're, 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 we're paying attention, we're feeling the breathing, or we're listening to a sound, hearing a sound, or we're um, tasting something, and, um, and we can ask three questions. And, and the questions... Um, if we're really paying attention, the questions answer themselves. And if we really listen to the answers, which we don't have to figure out, if we listen to the answers, the freeing comes. And the first question is, is this permanent or impermanent? And of course, if we're paying attention, no matter what we're paying attention to, the answer is... Impermanent, (laughs) yes. And the next question is, being impermanent, is it satisfactory or unsatisfactory? Unsatisfactory. And the third question is, being impermanent and unsatisfactory, why do I take it up as me or mine? Makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> really good practice is just to keep asking these three questions until we really get that third one. <laughs> and when we really get that third one, oh, what a relief. What a relief. So these three characteristics, the understanding of these three characteristics, the gateways to liberation not just gateway liberation of me, but just liberation. It's just freeing. And that, and that freeing, that freeing because of, because of the anatta, because of the non-separateness, that freeing touches everything. And the Buddha pointed over and over and over again that the the aim, the aim, the direction, the intention of this practice is for this liberation. This liberation that frees body, heart, and mind in a way that touches everyone and everything. So let's sit quietly together for a few minutes.
and sitting together quietly, touching and being touched by all of us here together. Touching and being touched by all things. Knowing intimacy with life.
May all beings know the illusion of perception. May all beings see through the delusion of believing the perception. May all beings know true intimacy and freedom of mind and heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.